Hello, and welcome to the Earthside Echo, your source for all the latest dispatches from Earthside. Tonight's programme brings us back into the heart of the King's Empire, or rather, it brings us above it, to one of the many transport dirigibles that ferry troops and equipment throughout the Empire. The crew of the Grace of Dover are about to find themselves engulfed in the Battle of London. I hope you enjoy part one of the fire at St Paul's. Her name was the IMFS Grace of Dover, and she flew over northwestern London half an hour after dawn, setting her shoulders against a fickle and nagging crosswind. She was a transport, her dirigible hull and army khaki rather than the silver and sky blue of the sleek Imperial Air Fleet blimps that surrounded her. Her gondola was triple story, and the two compartment levels were hung with dangling anchor claws and drop ladders beneath the reinforced hatches. The old-fashioned steam props on either side of her tail assembly chugged and whirred, adding what they could do to her speed, doing their best to keep up with the faster and more modern dirigibles. She hadn't come alone. The morning sky was crowded with blimps, bright air fleet warships, lumbering army workhorses, here and there the proud red and gold of Royal Expeditionary Forces ranger ships, or the red and blue of the Imperial Commonwealth Auxiliary used for troop transport. If the invaders in the city below were preparing for them, there was no sign of it. London lay seemingly lifeless beneath the thick, blanketing fog. Even the new star that burned bright in the daytime sky seemed indifferent to their presence. It hung motionless, crackling and boiling with flames bright enough to hurt the eye. Its features ran and blurred like inked lines soaking into soft paper, but it was still an unmistakably human form. But even as the armada filled the air below the flame, it merely hung pinned in the sky, as if unaware or uncaring of their presence. The King's Empire was coming to take back its capital. The first full day of the Battle of London was beginning. The morning light reflected off the gunpoint that the corporal stared through, bathing the edges of his features in sunlight. His expression was drawn and solemn, like the face of a stone saint turned toward heaven. Pig's ass, he said. That ain't what you saw, came a reply from behind him, across the narrow aisle of the troop compartment. How do you bloody know, then? He demanded, but the retort was reflexive. There was no heat in it. Come on, then, said the soldier behind him, a lean little man with restless dark eyes. We must almost be there by now. What do you see? Nothing I like, Corporal Clifford said with a slow shake of his head. Half the streets I can see are all tumbled down. Half of those are on fire. What's not on fire is underwater, and everything is covered in damned fog. He scrubbed a hand over his face and leaned back from the port. Looks like the whole middle of the city's swimming he said quietly. If I've got my bearings right, then it's water from Catford to Bethnal Green. I spotted that steelwork mast over the CM&A, but the beacon has gone dark. An exhalation, not quite a groan, went around the compartment. 
there had been talk that the Royal Military College of Mariners and Aviators in Greenwich would surely have been one of the places to hold out against the unexpected attack, but it seemed that it had not. "'Have you seen anyone?' asked his companion. "'Are any of these things they're talking about? Or... or him?' "'The Burning Man?' Clifford hooked a thumb over his shoulder. "'That bastard is up above the hang of the hull. You want to go and have a look at him? You'll have to wait until we're on the ground.' Another wave of muttering went around the compartment. No two of them had heard quite the same stories about the burning shadow, but they were all acutely conscious that it was in the sky with them, somewhere up ahead, surely getting closer and closer. "'It's the work of them guild, isn't it?' snarled the lantern-jawed Sergeant Mays at the far end of the bench. Most of the men had made the same mental step and nodded in silent agreement, but he kept on anyway. "'Never did trust those bastards from Vienna.' They're behind this, you mark my words. Don't know about that, Sarge, the lean little private began dubiously. Gildies are foreigners and all, but, I mean, they said that what's invaded London isn't, you know, human. We all heard that over the radio. Oh, did we? Well, I'll tell you something I heard, Private Hatton. While you was lolling about in barracks this morning, waiting for your mum to come and help you with your socks. This thing up in the sky, this burning man, he's gilled. So when I get down into the city and turn around to see a red coat... He slapped the barrel of his rifle propped between his knees. I'm damn well going to make that coat a little bit redder as soon as I can. Corporal Clifford sighed and returned to peering out the gunport at the city below. It had perhaps slipped the sergeant's mind that not every redcoat meant guild livery. There was one being worn on the grace that morning, and by his commanding officer at that. It was fortunate for the sergeant that the man in question was safely out of earshot and preoccupied with much more important matters than scolding a mouthy subordinate. Captain Edmonton, sir, message from the Kestrel. The fog's thinned enough for a scouting pass over Ludgate Hill now, and then they'll bring us back around to land you. How long? Edmonton didn't look up from the dispatch papers in his hand. They're estimating twenty minutes for the whole business, sir, the Grace's young navigator told him. We'll be grappling down over Paternoster Square. Kestrel will cast off then, and we'll stay anchored over you for as long as, uh, for as long as any of us manage to stay alive down there. Edmonton thought, but he looked at the boy's face and kept it to himself. Not everyone has ice water in their veins the way you do, Charles. He had lost track of how many times he had heard that particular scolding since his sister had first coined the words. Thank you. Edmonton glanced down at the order sheets again. His eyes flicked from numbers and nature of opposition unknown to established signalling post, to hold until reinforced, to at all costs to expect every man to do his duty, to long live the king. He read the words, at all costs, for a moment longer, then tucked the order sheets away and rapped on the plywood door behind him. He barely glanced at the man that opened it. Have the men ready for fighting disembarkation in fifteen minutes. Sharpshooters to the side gun ports before we anchor. The grenadiers are to be the first by the hatches. I'll land with the first sections. The signalman will land with the second. Very good, sir. 
the door closed, and Edmonton turned back for another look at where they were headed. The Grace's navigation station was a narrow little glass dormer below the bridge. Even with the clutter of telescopes and navigational instruments on jointed brass arms, the view was magnificent. In the middle distance were the great Rotherhive sky docks, a circle of red and white mooring masts and cranes, bright in the sun. An inspiring scene, until one realised how dead the towers looked. No lights flashed, no flags fluttered, no elevator cars moved, and two of the towers visibly leaned to one side or the other. Rotherhithe, like the St Catherine Sky Doctor Port, was built to be as solid as a mountain. Edmonton could not imagine what might have knocked those towers askew. Then, beneath them, a parting in the fog revealed their destination like a latter-day Avalon emerging from its mists. The dome of St Paul's rose into the morning sun in defiance of the macabre fate of the city around it. And around it, Edmonton moved to the front of the dormer, pushing the navigation half out of his seat. What on earth? He had expected they would find Ludgate Hill deserted, but the cathedral grounds were crowded with people, dozens deep on every side. They were not fighting or fleeing. It was hard to see what they were doing. How many do you suppose there are, sir? The young man asked. Edmonton shook his head. Couldn't guess. I suppose they fled up there for sanctuary, but couldn't get in. Well, ensign... Palfrey man, sir. Send a message up to the bridge, Palfrey man. We'll sort out the elderly children and injured. You ought to remain as long as you can. Load as many as you can. And get them out of London. Yes, sir. The little compartment filled with noise as the Grace of Dover adjusted height and course for her second pass. The internal pumps drowned out the sound of the engines, ballast water gurgled through the pipes on its way to tilt the nose down, and the ballonets creaked and crumpled as the gas in them was redistributed. Clatter and shouts came from the compartments behind him as the troops readied themselves. Something about the sight below them was bothering Edmonton. He could not exactly say why, but he had never in his life doubted his eyes or his instincts about what they saw. He wanted another look. Captain Newbury acknowledges your message, sir, Palfreyman told him. Good. Now mind your head, lad, Edmonton responded. Palfreyman looked around, flinched, and then ducked. Edmonton's rifle stretched almost the entire length of the navigator's compartment, a gleaming piece of bespoke engineering utterly unlike the solid Leighton fielding guns his troop carried. Mechanisms in its casing gave off strange clicks and stirrings as Edmonton aimed it. Uh, Captain, are you proposing to let that off in here, sir? Edmonton ignored the question, his eye still to the sight. The glass of the lens had been infused with fine soulstone dust as it was forged and annealed, and it brought up the view of the crowd below, with bewitching clarity. They packed the hilltop, large and small, young and old, paupers, clerks and tradesmen, society folk in fine evening dress. Here and there, bodies sprawled among the forest of legs, an old woman in black crinolines, two children in nightgowns lying face down and hand in hand, a young man naked but for a blue velvet coat, curled up in a pool of blood. Edmonton's expression darkened as he spotted uniforms in the throng, some military khaki, a handful of London bobbies, even a palace guard in ceremonial scarlet. The crowd wasn't still. They churned and shifted with a slow, hypnotic rhythm, some weaving amongst the rest in intricate paths and patterns, 
while others milled without apparent order or simply swayed in place. Their double shadows, one from the sun, one from the burning man, crisscrossed in disturbing counter-dances. That wasn't all that was wrong. He kept spotting twitches, distortions, hints of shadow like a fine crack in the glass of a lantern, vanishing before he could focus on them. For a moment, the view through the sight bulged like a picture drawn on a rubber balloon. Edmonton plucked a monocle from his special fob by his collar and fitted it over his eye. It was not a corrective, his vision had always been perfect. It was made from the same soulstone-infused glass as the gun sight lens, with a hair-fine tracery of lines and symbols etched into it. Edmonton bent his head to his sight again, and the symbols in the monocle's field came into alignment with an almost identical pattern around the sight's rim. The view before him sprang back into that same eerie, almost tactile clarity. But suddenly, there was more. Edmonton had seen many strange things with his gun sight fully woken by the monocle's formulae. A tiger in the Indian wilds, whose eyes and mouth had been full of swirling blue light. A handsome Bavarian aristocrat, who had appeared in the sight as a motley of shredded flesh flapping loose on a living carcass. Fragmentary glimpses inside the very skins of his targets. He could never be sure precisely what he would see, or whether he would see anything at all. He had never seen anything like this. Every member of the crowd was touched by fire. Bright, smokeless flame shone from their hands, eyes, tongues, hearts and bellies, stretched out to connect their bodies and left shimmering flames in their footprints when they moved, weaving a baroque cat's cradle of fire around St. Paul's. In the centre of it all, shining up through the cathedral walls, as if the solid stone was clouded glass, floated a radiant figure wreathed in flame. It was an imposing form, and the flames rolled from its body in an unnatural way that suggested flowing vestments and a headdress. As Edmonton focused in on the figure, it lifted its head and turned, tilting his head up as if to look directly at Edmonton's dirigible. Edmonton pulled back, removed his monocle and peered through the scope of his rifle once again, Bereft of the magical vision afforded to him by its enchantments, he saw only the solid wall of the cathedral. There could be no way that the man had noticed the flotilla, let alone Edmonton himself, and yet... His thoughts were interrupted by a sudden flash of purple-white light that lit up the cathedral's high windows, dimming the daylight. Outside, the crowd all raised their faces to the sky, lifted their arms and began to sing, a discordant, grating song that was more ululation than him. The light grew in strength, transforming the cathedral into a second sun before it lanced through the air like lightning. Edmonton heard Palfreman exclaim in surprise and horror as the jagged light struck the airship. Deeper in the airship, the purple-white light sent men recoiling from windows and gunports, cursing, their eyes squeezed shut. In a heartbeat, the light faded through a fiery orange and darkened into an eye-twisting flicker of blackness. A wet, organic crackling sound filled the air, like a joint of cooked meat being pulled apart. None of it made sense, but what came next, the judder and drop of the deck, the lift in the guts and pop in the ears, was horribly familiar. Losing height, handholds and brace! Already on edge, the men were moving even before Sergeant May's order. Stand ready to... There was a haze of bright purple light, a thick reek like rancid cream, 
and a lashing, snake-like movement in the air where Maze was standing. It vanished as suddenly as it arrived, but it took half of Maze with it, leaving him a laid-open mess of gore and bone. The men to either side of him screamed and clawed at writhing strings of gore that spattered them from helmet to boots. There was a flicker of light from the far end of the compartment, and another man died the same way. The deck jolted underneath them and began to tilt, and Clifford shouted at the men again to brace. Something smashed into them hard, metal tore with a grind and a scream, and the whole ship wrenched sideways around them, then fishtailed savagely back. Even those who'd braced themselves were tossed against the bulkhead walls. To hatches! Clifford bellowed over the din. Get the lines ready! He was cut off by a thunderous crack from out of thin air, as a jagged shaft of pure blackness surrounded by a corona of faint purple light skewered down through the compartment. To Clifford's mind, it was like the window of an aquarium. He could see through to the other side, a dark ocean only lit by the light that spilled in through the side of the glass. A four-eyed fish blinked at him in surprise, as if to underscore just how strange things had become. Then, as if at an unknown signal, the freezing water surged out from the portal and into the compartment, filling the enclosed cabin with briny ocean. I'm going to drown, Corporal Clifford thought. I'm going to die by drowning in the middle of the sky. His skin was numb his mouth and nose full of freezing water. Then someone managed to pull the hatch's locking lever and slam the bolts open. Whoever it was paid for the act with their life as the rushing water carried them away into the sky. Clifford blindly grabbed for a handhold, found purchase on a bolted-down chair, and clung on against the brutal torrent. With a nauseating sound like the splintering of bones, the fissure in the air narrowed and sealed itself shut. Just before it vanished, a handful of little wriggling creatures catapulted through it, swelling like balloons as they emerged and burst against the outer bulkhead. The stink of fish guts joined the smell of seawater as the men struggled to their feet. "'What's hit us?' Private Torbert shouted against the roar of the wind. "'What's happening? We're off course!' Nothing outside the hatch made sense. The horizon jumped and tilted as the ship rolled and yawed, the city below moving in the wrong direction. The Grace was being bowled through the air sideways by the wind that was shaking her to pieces. Forget the course, he shouted back. Grapple the first thing you can that'll hold us. I don't care what it is. Torbert scrambled for the steam launcher controls and spun the pressure wheel. From the compartment above came a sizzling noise, then a burst of animal yowling, and then a gunshot. Nearly there! shouted Torbert over his shoulder. Nearly. Oh, bloody hell. Brace! With a shattering racket of collapsing metal and splintering wood, they hit. The back half of the compartment had sprouted a wall. Clifford let go of the chair, peeled himself off the deck, shook his head, and looked again. Not a wall, but a roof, steep and angled, erupted through the compartment floor, he fell against the hatch lintel and stared out, almost wanting to laugh. The grace of Dover had impaled herself on the northern tower of Tower Bridge. A metallic bang from above snapped him out of it. There was no mistaking the sound of a steam valve bursting. Down, we're down. Ready at the hatches. Move it before the pipes blow. Clifford ran to the foot of the ladderwell as his grim-faced men scrambled out of the hatch. He shouted, but there was no answer except for the grace's own death throes. 
More bitter seawater splashed down from the upper deck, tinged pink with blood. Then a pipe blew directly above him, and the scalding white cloud chased Clifford across the compartment and out after his men. He hit the bridge tower's roof with incredible force and went skidding and tumbling down it, kicking futilely to try and slow himself until he almost careened straight over the tower's edge. He was lucky enough to have his boots catch the roof before he hurtled down into the debris-filled water below. One of the signalmen hung over the drop, trying to hold onto the ammunition box he had jumped with, but as Clifford reached for his arm, the man's grip failed, and he fell into the fog, staring at Clifford with wide eyes until he vanished. For a moment, he thought the buzzing sound that filled his ears was an after-effect of the landing, but as he got his balance back and tried to stand, he realised the others were hearing it too. "'Doesn't sound like a dirigible,' said Torbert, as he tried to unsling his grenade launcher without toppling off the tower. "'Can anyone see?' And then something came up out of the fog and snatched his head from his shoulders with a single lunging snap of its mouth. Clifford's senses went into a strange, slow adrenaline float. He looked at Torbird's corpse slumping backward, painting the roof with streaming arterial blood, and then into the clouded amber eyes of the thing backing lazily away through the air. Torbit's corpse crumpled at the knees and tumbled over the edge of the tower. It bit him! Hatton was yelling. It bit Torby's head off! Pull yourself together! Clifford shouted back, wrestling to bring his rifle around as more dark shapes came out of the fog banks. They looked more like wasps than birds, their toad-like bodies hung from blurred wings, Somewhere along the tower edge, someone panicked, took a too hasty shot that dislodged themselves from the ledge, and fell with a scream. Clifford grabbed for his bayonet, desperate for a weapon with which to defend himself. There was a boom, and Clifford's nearest attacker dropped away, its head cut into halves by a deep channel of gore. A moment later, its comrade followed it down with a fist-sized hole through its chest. A third beast that tried to wrestle Private O'Neill off the ledge screeched and took to the air as one of its arms exploded at the shoulder. The instant it was clear of its prey, another shot took away the top of its head. Finally, the beasts made the connection between these new sounds and their dwindling numbers and backed away, letting out croaks and squeals of alarm. The shots followed them, relentless as a metronome beat, and corpse after corpse dropped from the air until the survivors darted away into the fog again. Steadying himself as best he could, Clifford peered upwards. Captain Charles Edmonton stood in the blown-out window of the Grace of Dover's navigation dormer, behind his enormous bipod-propped SMLE rifle. He was no longer sighting down it. His face was turned away from the window. He seemed to be arguing with someone. He was still arguing when the Grace gave up the ghost. Her already mangled superstructure finally distorted too far and collapsed. Ballonets ruptured as gases spilled into the air and ignited. Edmonton reached behind him and unceremoniously heaved a skinny figure in a sky-blue uniform out through the window and leapt, the tails of his red coat flying out behind him. A moment later, the barely recognisable remains of the Grace of Dover slid down into the fog and vanished somewhere in the waters below. The northwest corner turret of the bridge had been torn completely away by the falling dirigible, leaving a ragged crater that the men gingerly climbed through. Clifford and Edmonton were the last in the tower itself, having been on watch for any more of the winged ravagers, and so they were the ones who took in the full scale of the disaster unfolding around them. 
The Grand Air Fleet was in tatters, its ships strewn across the sky at all angles and altitudes. Some were shedding ballast, trying to gain height. Others wallowed in the fog, visibly damaged and dying. Just to the west, the two troop ships sent to retake the St. Catherine air docks were both doomed. The spirit of Plymouth was ablaze, limping away northward and dropping a trail of burning fragments as she came apart. The faith of Bristol had lost her forward motion, her engines dead, and was slumping down onto her haunches. Her envelope rippled and sagged as water poured from wounds in her sides, perversely beautiful as it flashed in the morning sun. No airship carried that much ballast water. Edmonton leaned dangerously out from the roof to stare at the tiny black portals appearing in the sky. They resembled vaguely circular dots, like someone had scribbled across reality, their darkness stark against the bright blue of the sky and the pallor of the fog. Some hung in place, as though etched into the sky, while others drifted lazily back and forth along unpredictable routes. As he watched, one of the dark portals fully opened, releasing a pressurised jet of ocean water into the sky. Without really thinking about it, Edmonton fitted the monocle to his eye and raised his rifle. In the few moments he could bear to look at it, London, through the scope, was nothing he could have imagined. The city was a painting of itself, punctured, burned and slashed by a madman. He saw flames snapping down from the skies, and the terrible brightness of it all made his eye blink against the monocle. The higher he looked, the more intense the flames became, until at their centre... Suddenly all Edmonton wanted to do was look through the soulstone glass at the burning man, to frame him in the sight's eye, to see behind those flames. The urge was powerful, inexplicable, and as terrifying as it was compelling. Edmonton clamped down on the thought with all the steel he had in him. His face showed no expression, but for a moment his rifle shook in his hands as he lowered it and turned away. "'Sorry about keeping you waiting back there, Corporal,' he said. In all the excitement, it took me a moment to get my eye in. Well then, shall we go below? They could not descend to the bridge. The damage to the building was too great. Instead, they had to travel all the way down to where the tower met the water. The Grace's survivors left the tower's bottom as they had entered the top, through a torn cavity in its side. It's like one of them cities in the books, Private Dodston breathed as they stared out. Those ones that got sunk under the sea. They were well beneath the lazy grey murk of the fog. It choked the sun down to a dim smear, reduced the riverfront buildings to a looming blur, smothered the life out of sounds and carried the same briny tang of seawater that the deluge in the airship had held. Nothing moved. Not a lot of us got out the front hatch, O'Neill said dubiously, looking out to where the grace of Dover's bones curved up out of the water, and nobody got out the back. We can't be sure of that, Clifford replied, and if we were trapped in there, we'd want someone to come looking for us. So come on, lads, let's go looking. The water near the fallen airship was a creaking, bobbing mass of debris, packed so close that there were stretches where no water was visible at all. Wreckage was formed from boats and crushed clutter that had once been hansom caps, carts and crates. The mass of debris had been pushed from the bridge or washed down from the streets. No bodies, Hatton observed, 
as he slid down the side of a capsized coal barge and balanced awkwardly on a half-submerged brewery cart jammed under it. Notice that, anyone? Looking to find your countrymen dead. Lafferty growled from behind him. That's lovely, that is. You think those things that did Torbert in carried the dead off? Asked Greenway, eyes wide. Hatton shook his head. I got a good look at that damn thing. Too good a look. I don't think one of them things could lift a whole person. He crept closer to everyone, cautiously crossing the wreckage. There, pointed out a voice from above them. It was Edmonton. He was standing above and behind them on the upturned nose of a steam lorry. Up ahead, jammed between those trolley carts. And there, off to the left there, you can see pieces of people scattered about, if you want to look that close. The men squinted back and forth, and then turned to stare up at him. You learned the marks, he said to their unspoken question. Lions in the Serengeti, jaguars in the Sun Nations, wolves and bears in Canada, tigers in Great Asia. When you're a hunter, it's useful to know what's been done by a big beast instead of scavengers. He shifted his stance on his little metal perch and swung his rifle up. Its bipod unfolded and extended, anchoring to the edge of the lorry's grill. Mind you, he went on, half to himself, the jaws that did this don't match any animal I've ever bagged. More like... His rifle boomed the shockwave puffing a spherical gap into the fog around the muzzle. From up ahead came a bumbling squeal in a single splash. More like that. Arms ready, please, gentlemen. They barely needed telling. Edmonton's mention of big beasts had galvanised them. The fear and confusion of the morning fell away, and they were a King's Empire gunline again, quiet and stern. The muzzles of eight Leighton Fielding standard rifles pointed out into the gloom. These were a different breed from the winged toad wasps at the top of the bridge. They were taller, leaner, with narrow heads that thrust forward into mouths filled with porcelain pale needle teeth. As they leapt from the bridge above and vaulted through the floating wreckage, they filled the fog with eerie ululating that was maddeningly close to words. The rifles spoke, and half a dozen beasts collapsed, their jaws dropping in idiot surprise at the holes that appeared through their bodies. Brass cartridges pinged and sizzled as they bounced down into the water. The second volley cut through seven more, and the rest hesitated among the corpses in an attempt to hide. The third volley cut them down. They're coming from the bridge, Edmonton declared as he nodded with satisfaction. Nesting, perhaps? In any case, there will be no survivors from our compliment, gentlemen. I am sorry, but we must make for the riverbank. Corporal! The second wave of crawler beasts was more cunning than their cousins. They abandoned their massed rushes and spread out around them, scurrying over the debris shoals or slipping through the water with equal ease in an attempt to find a blind spot. The soldiers scrambled back toward the submerged line of the bridge. They darted past each other in threes and fours, shouting directions and warnings, cracking off shots whenever they heard the flap of webbed feet drawing closer, or saw a gate-moored Batrachian head peering around some piece of wreckage. We're leaving the captain behind, Greenway warned as he reloaded. 
He crouched with Huggins and the stern of a little yellow boat that had run aground on a reef made of wrecked gyrohansons, its paddle wheels splintered and torn away. He was frightened, his face and voice more boyish than usual. Clifford shot a look over his shoulders and saw Edmonton unmoved from his perch. Bugger still thinks he's on safari, Clifford growled. Purvis, your hindmost, give the captain a hoy. He turned in time to see Purvis's rifle slide off a dinghy hull and disappear into the water. Red spatters decorated the spot where the private had been standing. Dodson, Hatton, something's... He looked over to see Dodson struggling as he toppled into the water, pulled under by something Clifford couldn't see. He fired, missed and reloaded. A dozen feet away, a brief royal in the fog passed over a torn red and white awning, and for a moment those colours rippled upward, limning a long, muscular body and predatory head. In a moment it was gone, its skin shedding the red and white pigmentation it had adopted and fading into the grey as it darted aside. Clifford opened his mouth to shout again when it crashed into him from a completely different angle, barrelling him over. Chilly, astringent breath swamped his face. Somewhere close, a string of popping reports emptied from a small calibre sidearm. The face, Clifford saw its ghostly outline edged in the fog, reared away from him and turned to find the source of the stinging. Its mouth opened, and a twitching tongue, as long and thick as Clifford's arm, unravelled into the air. With strange adrenaline clarity, Clifford saw that his own breath plumed in the air, but that the fetid breath of the chameleon creature gave off no steam. Edmonton's shot tore through the thing's back, knocking it off balance. Clifford kicked free of it, brought up his bayonet, and drove twelve inches of Scunthorpe steel through its neck. The creature rolled off him and slid down into the water, split throat gurgling. Ripples of red and grey chased around its form until it vanished. Clifford sat up. Palfreyman crouched a few paces away, shivering, pistol still outstretched. Edmonton was behind him, reloading. There was an odd-looking monocle over one of the captain's eyes. Thank you for managing to get your iron, sir. Yes, well, Edmonton said. As it happens, Palfreyman was being something of an ass about blocking my line of fire, and I had to move. On your feet now, Corporal. Come and meet our company. Sir? I do believe we're being signalled. That's it for another episode of the Earthside Echo. Join us next time for the conclusion of the fire at St Paul's.